0: And I'll be reading uh, verses one to eleven. So would you please um, stand with me as we give honor to the Word of our God. John fifteen. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be full. Sorry, that your that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last week we began our study of, of John fifteen, one to eleven by focusing on verses one to six, and I explained that in verse five, uh, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And I explained that 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 passage, the truth of that passage has had a big impact on me, and it wasn't until I saw it, it wasn't until I saw that, that truth that I couldn't do anything at all without Jesus, that I began to see his sovereignty and my utter dependence on him for everything. And only then would God get the glory that he deserves. So here in in this passage, Jesus was was comforting the disciples in the advent of the cross. He was preparing them for his departure. And he told them that in order to bear fruit for the glory of God, that they need to abide. The same is true for us. In order to bear fruit for God, we need to abide to abide. And the question needs to be asked, what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to abide? And I explained that last week that the Jesus uses this word 10 times in this passage. In fact, he uses it 10 times in in verses 4 to 10. That's that seven, sorry, 10 times in 7 verses. And when a word is repeated like that often in scripture, it should be like a beacon it should, it should point you to the fact that something very important is happening here, that there's something, a, 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 a truth that, that we need to understand. So what does it mean to abide? Well, some translations like the NIV use, use the word remain. They say, whoever remains in me and I in him. But that really doesn't quite get it. Because to abide is to remain, but it also means to reside, to live in, and to live with Jesus. And we get a hint at this from John 14, 2, where Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. And the Greek word that's translated rooms is mone, which means more accurately dwelling places. And it's actually a, 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 it's from the verb meno, which is, tra- which is used in John 15, me- meaning abide. Uh, Bob Diefenbaugh therefore concludes that to abide in Christ as the true vine is to make our home in him, just as he also makes his abode in us. He says if we we wish to stress the remain aspect of this term, we might translate meno as to make our permanent home. So to abide in Christ is to make your permanent home in him. I like the way that J.C. Ryle explains it. He says, abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me, get nearer and nearer to me, roll every burden on me, cast your whole weight on me, never let go your hold on me for a moment. That's what it means to abide. It has the the connotation of of all those things. It's, it's, It's a close, intimate relationship with Jesus and all that that entails. If you're a Christian, you want to abide in Jesus. You want that intimate relationship with Jesus and you will not be satisfied with anything else. Jesus is the true vine. He's the true vine. He is your true vine. But we all struggle, don't we? We all, we all are like infants sometimes being distracted by the, the shiny baubles of the world. And whether it's, it's riches or career or entertainment or travel or sports, all things that are, are morally neutral, any of these things can become barriers that keep us from the intimate, abiding relationship with Jesus. And it's only when we, when we, keep, we see these things as, as a blessing from the Lord in the right perspective to be received with thanksgiving, to be enjoyed for the Lord, for the glory of His name, that we're able to keep these things from becoming idols in our lives. But even things that the Bible presents as good, things like marriage and family and work and ministry and even right doctrine, can become obstacles to our relationship with Jesus. We can enjoy these things also as gifts from the Lord, but we must consider them primarily as a means to an end. As a means to an end. And the, that end is intimate relationship with Christ and the building of His kingdom. Any time that, that we, we, we view these things in of the of themselves, they're, they're idols. They're idols. We need to go back to God and to understand what these things are to be used for. So what is your vine? Is it something besides Jesus? Is it one of the things that I've already listed? Is it something else? John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. He says we're, we're constantly churning things out that take the place of God in our lives. And this characterizes the life of the unbeliever. Everything in their life takes the place of God. But even Christians too easily get, let things get in the way of their relationship with Christ. Please turn with me in your Bible for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2 verses 12 and 13. Here Jeremiah uses another illustration to present the same truth as Jesus did with the vine. He refers to the Lord as the fountain of living waters. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the two evils are forsaking the Lord and seeking water from a jerry-rigged broken cistern. But brothers and sisters, when you are abiding in Christ, when you're you're quenching your thirst from the the pure, clear water that the Lord offers, you'll never be satisfied with that stagnant, stinky sewer water ever again. When you're abiding in Christ, when you're drawing on, on close fellowship with Him, nothing less than Christ, can satisfy you. But how do we do this? How do we abide in Christ? We've talked a lot about what abiding means, but how do you do it? The, the world is full of how-to manuals. You can, can purchase a Haynes manual to, to understand how to fix your car. You can watch videos on YouTube of, uh, for how to fix a surfboard. You can read online forums for how to grout tile. And the Christian life is no different. You can go to the local quote-unquote Christian bookstore and find a whole section on how to live the Christian life how to abide in Christ but the problem is most of these books are built on a wrong foundation most of these authors don't know who Jesus is so there is no way that they can possibly tell you how to abide in him if you want to know how to abide in Jesus this is where you look this is the how-to manual for, for living the Christian life. Now I'm not saying that there that there aren't books that are valuable to that are valuable to help us in order to understand these truths, but if they are not grounded in Scripture, they are not even, they're, they're, they're not even worth lining of, of your budgie cage. They need to be burned. Last week we saw how this passage, how John 15 shows us the motivation and the means for living the Christian life. And this week, I want to talk about the method for living the Christian life. And and this, this sermon keeps on getting longer and longer. Next week, I'm going to be, be coming back to this text again as we, we go back to the results of this, back to the motivation. And we'll see, we'll see that that we'll see that the role that, that obedience plays in this, and we'll see that this produces joy. So again, last week we spoke about the motivation and the means. And I, I said that God is the motivation, and God is the means. God is, is the motivation and that we abide because of the joy of an intimate relationship with God. But God is also the means. We abide in Him because He enables us to do so. And last week I spoke about how abiding is both a, a command and a promise. It's a promise in that the, the branch doesn't hang on to the vine by itself. We abide in Jesus in the strength that He gives us. We abide in Jesus because Jesus abides in us. We are faithful to Him because He is faithful to us. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, not even abide. God is the motivation and God is the means. This week I'm going to talk about the method. We are motivated by a relationship with God for the glory of God and for the joy that that brings. But the method is how we work this out. The method is, is what we do. Now, God is sovereign, but man is also responsible. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. We, we come back to this truth again and again because Scripture teaches both, often in the same passage. Last week I discussed Philippians two twelve and 13. And I looked there specifically at verse 13, which says, which says God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. But you can't ignore verse 12, where Paul tells us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 is also well known. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But what does verse 10 say? For we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works that He has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. When faith is there and real and present, then it will necessarily result in works for the glory of God. The Christian faith is is not just let go and let God. So in, in John 15, verse 7, Jesus outlines two practical ways that Christians abide in Christ. Christians abide in Christ through the word and prayer. Through the word and prayer. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So really this whole sermon is on that one verse. Verse. We abide through the word and prayer, and they're, these are, they're interconnected, but it generally starts with the word, which then leads into prayer, and they both produce obedience and joy as fruit. Now, Bible study and prayer are, are sometimes referred to as means of grace, as means of Of grace. John Frame describes, defines the means of grace as certain channels by which God gives spiritual power to his church. They're like the platters on which God's blessing is served to us. The platters on which God's blessing is served to us. Don Whitney refers to these as spiritual disciplines. And I, I recommend his excellent book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He lists other means of grace in that as well. Others include inc- other means of grace or spiritual disciplines, include fellowship and fasting, and the, the corporate ones of, of receiving the Lord's Supper and baptism. And when we are cultivating that that close, abiding relationship with Jesus, we will bear fruit, the fruit of obedience. And the joy of Jesus will be in us. But before I proceed, I I need to be very careful here. I have three strong warnings. First of all, I am not advocating legalism trying to do things in order to earn favor with God. We study God's word, we pray, and we do what pleases God because we have favor with God. We love him and we're thankful to him, so we want to live lives that are honoring to him. And we want to grow in our relationship with him. The basis of our relationship with with Jesus is what he did for us not what we do for Him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Second, we must not do these things in order to earn favor with others. Fear of man is a very powerful motivation in people's lives. People want to look spiritual, so they're quick to tell others about the great things that they are doing for God. But if that's your heart, if that's what you're doing, you're not doing anything for God. It's for you. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said to let your light shine before others so that they may may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They would see your good works so they would give glory to God, not so that they would give glory to you. Third, we must not do these things in order to earn favor with ourselves. Pride is one of the strongest of sinful motivations. We too easily do things in order to feel better about ourselves. That's no so different from, from the penance that Roman Catholics do. We feel good about ourselves because we spend X amount of time in prayer or in Bible study. And it's possible to spend hours every day in, on your knees and in the word and be completely unsaved. Think of the Pharisees. How much time do you think they spent on their knees? How much time do you think they spent in prayer? But Jesus called them whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Think of the, of the Jews with their focus on the outward work of circumcision. But what Jesus requires is a circumcised heart. So with the time that we have left, let's look at how Jesus tells us to abide. How Jesus tells us to abide. He tells us to abide in the Word and to abide in prayer. First of all, in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, (coughs) excuse me, in you. Jesus is the word. He is the logos of God. If he abides in us, his words will abide in us. But he says, if, if you abide. A.T. Robertson says that, that abiding is a command and a promise, but that promise has conditions and limitations. And it's only those who abide in the word who abide in Jesus. Lloyd wrote that the Lord Jesus can only live and express himself in us if we are constantly meditating on his words, which we have treasured up for us in the gospel. Paul Washer speaks of D.A. Carson's definition of abiding in the word. He says, abiding in Christ through continuous dependence on his word, constant submission to his word, and persistent spiritual imbibing of his word. Let me say that again. Abiding in Christ through continuous dependence on his word, constant submission to his word, and persistent spiritual imbibing, imbibing of his word. Are the words of Jesus abiding in you? Are the words of Jesus abiding in you? What is Jesus talking about here when he talks about his word abiding in you? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, Satan tempted him by telling him to command stones to become bread. And Jesus responded with the word. He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see your time in the word as being your very lifeblood? The sustenance that you need in order to survive. That is how important it is. The Word of God is more important than the very food that you eat. husbands and fathers Paul said in first timothy five eight that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If this is true for the food on their plates, how much more essential is it that you provide food for your family's hearts? Having your family listen to a sermon or or reading a devotional that somebody else has written is valuable, but what Jesus is talking about here is so much more. Listening to a sermon is not feeding on the Word it's not feasting on the word quite often it's actually enjoying the leftovers from somebody else's meal it, it's producing the, it's the the work it's bearing it's supposedly trying to bear fruit from some the work that somebody else has done each week do you know who gets the most blessing out of my sermons me because because I I've been been blessed with the opportunity to to be able to study these passages and to to pour over them through the week. This is a, a privilege that I enjoy. But fathers, you are called to do this in your own homes. Following a particular preacher or following a particular movement is not leading in your home. You need to be in the Word yourself, studying the Scriptures for yourself. When I was in seminary, one of my pre- professors said that when it, comes to st- when it comes to studying, when it comes to studying commentaries or studying the Bible itself, why would you go to the jewelry store when you could go to the diamond mine? Why would you go to the jewelry store when you could go to the diamond mine? Brothers, the Bible is a diamond mine with rich veins of glorious truth that that run deeper than you could plumb in ten lifetimes. Dig into God's Word. Dig deeply into God's Word. But don't rely on past study. Make it fresh in your heart and in your mind. Don't go to your families unprepared. What would you think if I were to come up here on a Sunday morning without having spent time in study? How much more should we prepare before we spend time with our families in the Word? Spend time in the passage before you sit down with your family. Pray over it. Seek the, the, the key points that the, that the God-inspired author would, would have for you. Think about it in its, in its context. Think of some key points that, to, to teach to your family from it and, and how you can best present and package that truth that they may feast on it. And I know I need to get back to this as well. When Jane and I were, were courting, I wanted to establish a pattern of, of, of spending time in the Word with Jane. And I didn't want to just, just, just waltz through it. I wanted to prepare for it. So I went over the passage beforehand, and I made notes, and I, and I, and I, I prepared my heart in order to be able to, to share these truths with her. But, but amazingly, I it actually found it easier in, in courtship than I, than I do in marriage. Maybe you've been married for many years, can testify to the same thing. We need to feast on the Word ourselves in order to be able to feed our families. Again, don't just study. rely on the study of other men. Don't rely on preachers and commentators to feed you. Don't rely on me to feed you. That's not my primary job. My primary job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to spoon feed you. That's why we're we're doing this, this study in hermeneutics, because we want to equip men to be able to be powerful in the word of God, to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. To be able to lead in their own families, to be able to lead in their communities. But in families, wives and children should not rely entirely on husbands and fathers either. You need to cultivate your own relationship with the Lord. Single men, if you are not feasting on God's Word now, what makes you think that you will do it in marriage? Single women, if you are not feasting on God's Word now, how will you recognize a godly man and how will you be the kind of woman that would attract a godly man? Married women, how will you be able to model the kind of godliness that you want to see in your children unless you too are feasting on the Word? But again, all of these things are a means to an end. There are means to an end. The goal in all of this is a closer relationship with Jesus for yourself and for your loved ones. How can you expect to know Jesus unless you know his word? The word reveals his character. And many times when I've been talking with somebody about a particular doctrinal truth, they would say, my God would never do that. And they're right. Their God never would do that because their God is not the God of the Bible. People often draw a distinction between God in the Old Testament and God in the New. We talked about that on Wednesday night. They see God as as harsh in the Old Testament and forgiving in the New. They see God as, as jealous in the Old Testament and gracious in the New. But they don't understand that God is the God of both Testaments. God never changes. He is the I Am, the eternal I Am. So when Jesus says that his words abide in you, he's not just talking about the red words in your Bible. He's talking about all of the words in the Bible. All the words of Jesus are all the words of the Bible, and they all must abide in you. Spurgeon wrote that that when speaking of the Scriptures, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. That wherever you are in England, now I don't know, I've I've never been to England. Is that true? Is that, that every road in, in England, that, there, that there, in every village there's a road that leads to London in England. I don't know, but, but we'll take Spurgeon's word for it. But he says that so from every text in Scripture, there is a road toward the great metropolis, Christ. That from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the great metropolis, Christ. Beloved, the Bible shows us Jesus. The Bible shows us Jesus. Jesus is there in every page of Scripture. And if we neglect the word of Jesus, we are neglecting Jesus. On Friday evening at the Blacks, we spent some time on 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Verses 4 and 5, Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Beloved, our spiritual weapons are the word and prayer. Think back again to Matthew chapter 4. How did Jesus defeat Satan's temptation? He said, it is written. It is written. Satan attacked Jesus with half-truths taken out of context. Jesus retaliated with the whole truth rightly applied. So when we, when we neglect the Word of God, we are neglecting one of the greatest and most powerful weapons that we have as believers. In in Psalm 119, verse 11, David said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Beloved, we need to hide God's word in our hearts. Read it again and again. A great starting place is Robert Murray McShane's Bible in a Year. That's a great place to start. It, but I, I, that's to do the Bible in a year would be would be a good thing. But I believe that the, the Cassons do the Bible in about what is it three months? Reading the four months reading is it fourteen chapters a day? What a great discipline! What a great way to to read the Word. To to lead in your families in this way. But again, I want you to think back too of what I was saying earlier. It's it's not about necessarily about the quantity. It's about the quality. It's it's if you just do that as a, as a legalistic method, without your heart being in it, it's it's going to not help you at all. If and I remember, I know we we all do this, but but there are times. Even just yesterday, as Jane and I were were looking through, she was she was she we read a couple of chapters each and she was reading through Jeremiah and I had to confess I just I just did a blank I, I, I completely I, I spaced out on, on what she was reading there's there's no value in that it's got to be from a right heart I Would also encourage you if you have a smartphone to, to download the fighter verse app i think it costs a dollar maybe two dollars it's a great way to help you to to memorize scripture it's it's got several different ways that that you can use in there with 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 fill in the blanks that get increasingly harder to, to help you to memorize scripture to hide god's word in your heart when describing the armor of god in ephesians chapter 6 Again, Paul lists only two offensive weapons, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer in the Spirit. We'll talk about prayer in a minute. But in Hebrews 4.12, the writer says that, "...for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart." It's actually better translated that the Word of God is living and effective. It's effective. The Word of God does what it was ordained to do. In Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, The Word is likened to the rain and snow that waters the earth and brings forth fruit. And Isaiah quotes the Lord saying, So my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that for which I sent it. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the Word. In the Word we find Him. And in the power of the Spirit, the Word cuts away our gangrenous flesh just as precisely as a surgeon's scalpel. And to return to the vine analogy, the word prunes you so that you will bear more fruit for the glory of God. The words of Jesus reside in our hearts and bring transformation by the Holy Spirit. So now let's look at prayer. Jesus tells us in verse 7 to abide in prayer. He continues, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this is conditional. It's conditional. It is only those who abide in Jesus and those in whom his words abide that can lay claim to this promise. Prayer is grounded in the word. The Word should prompt prayer. It should inform prayer. But now, of course, we should pray trying to go going to the Word in order to, to ask the Lord to, to help us to understand, to help us to focus, to help us to, to, to rightly apply these things. We should pray before going to the Word. We should pray while reading the Word. But as you study the Word, you see what you need to pray you see where you fall short and where you need God's help. This past week, I've been reminded of of the fact that that I need to balance truth with love and justice with with mercy and grace. And as lying in bed thinking yesterday morning, I I was reminded again that the bottom line here is love. Love for God and love for others. And I realized that I did not have that as I should. I did the only thing that I could do. I went to the Lord in prayer. I went to the Lord in prayer asking Him to fill me with love for Him that would overflow into love for others. We also see in God's Word how to pray. Please turn to to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, in verses uh, 5 to to 15, Jesus lays down what is often called the Lord's Prayer, but what is really the disciples' prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. First notice in verse 5 that he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. He's thinking here the Pharisees, the Pharisees who, who, who loved long robes and loved long prayers. Now I've heard and even prayed many prayers that were doctrinally accurate but were prayed to those in the room, not prayed to the Lord. Verse 6, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. A hypocrite prays long, ornate prayers in public and little or not at all in private. A hypocrite prays the right words but doesn't have the right heart before God. I confess that that quite often my prayer life is not as it should be. Quite often I, I, when I'm going to prepare for a sermon, I, I would pray a, a perfunctory prayer thinking, okay, I've got to get into the text. I've got to get into the Word. I've got to, I've got to, to, to get my notes down. But if I am not grounded in prayer, if I'm not relying on the Word of God, if I'm not relying on the Spirit of God, then whose ideas are going to come out? Who's going to get the glory from any message? We are all desperate. Remember what Jesus said in John 15:5. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. And it's not until you understand your desperation that you understand your need for prayer. And so Jesus contrasts this in verse 6. He says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God will reward real prayers from the heart. And the present reward is, is answers to those prayers. And the future reward is a crown in glory. But the greatest reward, both, both present and future, is relationship with God Himself. Have you ever experienced sweet communion with the Lord? I mean, those, those really sweet times of prayer where, where it, the time just goes on. And you d- you don't even realize how much time has elapsed because you are communing with your God. Now we don't base a relationship with God on our feelings, but a real relationship with God will affect our feelings. And the more that you experience this, the more that you want to experience this. It's sort of a, of a cliche of, of a of supposed relationship with, between a husband and wife where at the breakfast table the, the husband has his head buried in a newspaper and will grunt one-word responses to his wife. But sadly, that, that's often a reflection of marriages where the, the communication is only at a superficial level. And it's only a matter of of how's the weather? What what do the kids do today? It's more like a business relationship than a marriage. Now how often does that happen in your marriage? How often does that happen in your prayer life? That you see prayer as as just a duty. Prayer is just something that, that you have to do before you can get on with what you want to do with your day. But beloved, the more time you spend with someone, the more you will become like them. Bad company corrupts good morals, but good company has a profound influence too. So how much of an influence can times of real devoted prayer have in your life to sanctifying you and to transform you into the image of Jesus? And verse 7, Jesus says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Not just empty phrases. This is another area where I've I've been convicted, where where when I I get up in the morning and I I go down on my knees and pray, that that it's it's just there's a rote list of things that I pray pray for, and my heart is not really in this. These rote prayers are an abomination to the Lord. It's like the prophet says that the people in Israel, they're, they're near me in their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I'm not the only person in this room that, that does this. Jesus goes on in verse eight, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. We 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 pray resting in God's providential care. In Psalm 37 4, the psalmist writes, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. This is true, I believe, on many levels, but when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you your desires. When you delight yourself in, in the Lord and your, your, your prayer life is informed by Scripture, your, your, you will pray God's mind. You will want the things that God wants. You're not going to be praying selfishly. But I believe even more, when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart because when you are delighting yourself in Him, He is He is the desire of your heart. So when you pray in this way, He is going to give you Himself. Himself, the greatest treasure that He can give you. So when we pray in in this way, it's not just like a shopping list of needs. It's it's a real heartfelt prayer. Just quickly, there, there are seven parts of this prayer It's an appeal to God's love. And it's it's an appeal to God's love. It's, It's praising God's name. We're seeking His kingdom. We're seeking His will. We're seeking His provision. We're seeking His forgiveness. And we're seeking His leading. And this loosely follows the ACTS acronym, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication adoration, we, we praise God for who He is, for His loving kindness, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His wisdom, His justice. This helps put our hearts in the right frame of mind. But then with confession, we call to mind sins that, that we have not yet taken to the Lord, asking for His forgiveness. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter says that that if husbands do not live with their wives in an understanding way, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayer, if you don't do that, your prayers will be hindered. If you're not living with your wives in an understanding way, God is not listening. But I believe the same is true if, if we have any willful disobedience in our hearts. Any willful disobedience God will not hear our prayers so we need to deal with these things before the Lord as a priority if your ultimate goal is relationship with Jesus then you will deal with these things when you want a relationship with somebody you you are not you will not let things get in the way you want a relationship with Jesus, you will not let your sin get in the way. With thanksgiving, we, we thank God for his forgiveness and for the provision for all of our needs. Then finally, with supplication, we ask God to supply for our needs and for the needs of others. But these are all grounded in thy will be done trusting that God knows best. But these prayers are prayers that are made in the name of Jesus. Remember from, from John 14, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So when we ask in Jesus' name, we're asking in the authority of Jesus. We're asking in the, in the forgiveness of Jesus. We're asking in the, in the will of Jesus. We often hear people just, just praying the words, in Jesus' name, amen, but, but they, we get used to saying that so it doesn't even mean anything anymore. But praying in Jesus' name means so much. It means we're praying, trusting Him. We're praying, abiding in Him. Praying, knowing that, that we need Him for everything. So to pray in the name of Jesus means to pray with your will submitted to God's. It means seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. It means seeking Jesus. So are you seeking Jesus? Do you want to have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Then practice these means of grace. Practice these disciplines knowing. Knowing that it will bear fruit in your life for God's glory. Knowing that in doing these things, you will be filled with the joy of of Jesus. Knowing that it will draw you closer to Jesus and that it will make you more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have given us these means of grace. You have given us your word. You have given us the privilege of prayer where we can boldly approach the throne room of the Most High God. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to use these means of grace, that that you might use them to to cause us to, to draw closer to you. That you will fill our cups to overflowing with intimate relationship with Jesus for the glory of your name.